Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. Matthew's gospel, 
Uh, but if you want something that's going to inspire you and lift you up on eagle's wings, it's it's going to be John you would go with. So uh, just uh, they they both uh, are inspired. It's just two different approaches. Yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to doing John because, I mean, it it, it is amazing when we go into the depth of that, uh, how we see the the marriage between God and man. Uh, or God in his church and uh, the little uh, the little uh, idiosyncrasies and things a few different words that mean so much yeah and it, and it's interesting because um of the of the five works that that John wrote that made the new testament uh his gospel chronologically was probably the last of the five uh, and yet it's the, it, it, it appears first, but anyway, um, matter at hand, we got a little, a little book called Matthew that we're still dealing with, so we'll worry about that <laughs> later. Um, so, uh, we're going to start off with a little bit of review. We've gotten, we've gotten pretty deep into Matthew, and I know you want to start with a little bit of a, of a summation of what we've gone over so far. Yeah, uh, so... We are pretty far into Matthew's gospel now, so we should probably do uh, an extensive review for, for our audience here. If you're just coming on board, you could also go back and, <clears throat> and review uh, the, the, the previous presentations. But to start to truly explain that Matthew issued a, uh, a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome. So Matthew in his gospel, as you have said previously, uh, John, was making a case to the Jews. He was developing a factual basis to the Jews for Jesus being the Messiah they were waiting for. So Jesus is the true Moses who established the true exodus of baptism into the land flowing of milk and honey of the sacramental life in the reestablished kingdom of David. Jesus will establish the true Passover for the general redemption of the world in the Holy Mass. Protestants uh, always limit the image of the word gospel or good news. Catholics see the word in the same way a first century Jewish convert did <coughs> and uh, examine scripture through this same lens. So in addition to the gospel expressing the coming of the Messiah, who died for our sins, who rose again, destroying the power of death. You know, Catholics look to multiple prophecies fulfilled as part of that same gospel. Gospel, Paul shows us in Hebrews 12:22, for example, that the church is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Mount Zion. Uh, Mount Zion is the mythical mountain in Isaiah to which we will go to in order to learn the wisdom of God and the law shall go forth from Zion. So in the gospel fulfilled, James at the Council of Jerusalem quoted Amos, who prophesied of the kingdom of David being restored. And he saw this kingdom being restored right there in that first council of the Catholic Church in Acts 15. So the book of Daniel talks about the fifth kingdom not made by hands, and Augustine explains that the Catholic Church is that fifth kingdom. And <clears throat> Matthew writes the words of Jesus, who, who described himself as the Son of Man. And Daniel sees the vision of the Son of Man in the heavens as a physical manifestation of God. 
So James saw uh, the Council of Jerusalem as the beginning of that fulfillment of that kingdom restored by the Son of Man. So this was the first council of the magisterium of the universal church for which we get the word Catholic. This was the first assembly. So the church became Catholic truly when circumcision, which was the sign of the promise of, uh, of uh, Abraham uh, for Jews only, baptism for both Jews and Gentiles, beginning the fulfillment that Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as a start. <clears throat> Excuse me. I uh, went off to Texas last week, and I, and I got a flu coming back, and I'm still not completely over it. So, Right. I had a rough weekend as well, so if I sound nasally, it's for the same reason. Yeah, exactly. I think it's going around. Council is addressing both Jews and Gentiles baptized into the church, and at this council, an incredible thing happened. Not through scripture, but through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Peter, through the authority of the keys of binding and loosing, declared that both Jews and Gentiles in the church are saved by grace, not the law of Moses. Uh, uh, if the people of the council didn't think that Peter had the authority to do this, they would have freaked out. I mean, they would have called Peter blasphemous. They probably would have tried to stone him. He is saying that 1,300 years in Mosaic law no longer count, that we're all saved by grace apart from the law of Moses. <clears throat> so Jesus would never have given Peter the keys of succession of the kingdom and binding and loosing if he was not reestablishing and fulfilling the prophecy of the reestablished kingdom of David which moved from a type as purely a physical kingdom into a fulfillment of a sacramental kingdom, which is a physical sign that gives spiritual grace. Therefore, Jesus said, you are not of the world. If you're of the world, uh, the world would know its own. So Paul would never have called the church the pillar and foundation of truth. If it was not of the sacramental nature united to heaven as Mount Zion. This gives us a deeper understanding of Jesus' words as he passed on the keys to Peter, who would become the physical foundation as his first supreme ambassador until the end of time when he said whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. So <clears throat> Matthew starts his gospel with the begets to lay down a case for all of this to come. And the Jews understood through prophecy that the kingdom of David would always have an earthly leader, would never be destroyed. So they're always looking for this future king to restore the kingdom. Yet we see a precursor and an example of God's hesed, our steadfast love to Abraham. Jesus rebuking the Pharisees who, in a haughty tone, said they are the lineage of Abraham. Said, uh, said that God can even take stones and raise up children of Abraham. So the precursor was the marriage between Boaz, a Jew, and Ruth, who was a Gentile, who said, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And from them came the Davidic line that led to Christ our King, who Matthew shows fulfilling the prophecy of being born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, in a manger, which is an eating trough, showing us a precursor of the Eucharist. 
So Jesus began ministry in the Galilee, which was half Gentiles and half Jews. Jesus began to teach something that was completely foreign to that present world. Before the Holy Spirit entered the world, people were missing something in, in their thought processes. They could, they could through philosophy, thoughts about there being one God, but they did not experience the concept of charity as we feel it. You had things like the Code of Hammurabi, which dealt with uh, a law of substitution such as an eye for an eye. You had the pedagogy for the Jewish people, rule, fear, and temporal punishment due to their uh, being influenced by 400 years in Egypt. As part of this pedagogy or, or strict schoolmaster for a child, God even made them sacrifice to him what they once worshipped in Egypt. So <clears throat> we also brought up that in establishing the teaching of the Beatitudes and charity, Jesus was teaching something that was not going to be possible until after Pentecost, after God spiritually creates a new heaven and a new earth, and the laws of conscience were infused on the soul as grace given freely. As Christians, we take this law of conscience and raise it to the Beatitudes through the love of the cross as the beginning of our life of transforming grace to which we are saved. So we can't review everything here, of course. So we have discussed so far. Uh, so I think that, 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 that that's, a, that's a pretty good highlight before uh, we move on, unless you got something to add. Yeah, I, I would just emphasize, we've emphasized several times, the challenge that Matthew was facing. Because they the Jews understood these things in broad themes, that there would be a Messiah, that he would be the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, uh, and all of these things. They could not have envisioned what God was doing here, that, that God himself would take on human flesh, come here, be born in a manger, suffer and die on a cross, be like us in all things except the sin. And this this person, Jesus, who's this complete enigma, I mean, I just try to take myself out of the knowledge that I have, remove myself from the situation, and try and read the Gospels as an objective person. And I have to be honest with you, Luke, I would be completely lost at who this Jesus person is. At one moment, one moment he seems like he's God. At the next moment, he seems like he's subservient to God, the, the, the holiest man that, that, that uh, you know, ever lived. Then at some moments, he seems like he's very, very stern and, and strict and almost harsh and and then at other moments, he seems like he's compassionate and empathetic. And you see all of these images all, in, all centered in one person. I can't imagine the difficulty that Matthew had in sorting all this out in a way that made sense to, you know, to a first century audience. It's something that we've been trying to unravel 2,000 years since then and, and struggled with just exactly how Jesus is of who Jesus is and how he presents himself to us. I, I, I can't imagine the weight on the shoulders of Matthew. Can you? Uh, no. And I would add to that another thing that really, you know, idea of sola scriptura, just completely, you know, unreasonable. 
let's say the Bible was all put together in the first century, and you simply gave the Bible to the pagans. They'd still be pagans today. Mm-hmm. Nothing would have changed. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Outside of the church, uh, I would have read probably about the first three chapters of Matthew and then and, and then sat it down and said, I can't make any sense out of this. I, I, I don't know where you got this, but... Um, but it's, it's only the witness of the church and, and the and the miraculous testimony and history and, and the witness of the people that the church has produced. They're the greatest witnesses. No, no church, no church that is false could have produced a Mother Teresa or, or a John Paul the Great or a St. Francis of Assisi or, or a, a St. John Vianney or a Thomas Aquinas. Note that, Luke. So. You know, the church is the greatest witness to the scripture, um, not the other way around. Yeah, and, and I would say for our Protestant brothers and sisters, if, if, if you look in reason, you know, at this, uh, we can say that outside of the pillar and foundation of truth, the Holy Spirit is primarily a manifestation of God's love not an affirmation of God's truth. Because if that were to be true, then everybody would have the same faith as the disciples of the apostles who were Catholic. So we'll go ahead and we'll start with Matthew 17, 1 through 9, which uh, takes us through this amazing transfiguration. But I'm going to get a drink of water first. So, and after six days, Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And lo, a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And the disciples, hearing, fell upon their face and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them, said to them, Arise and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no, no man, till the Son of Man risen from the dead. Now, before we get into the, the you know the biblical side of this, but, uh, uh, I want to address something that is kind of fascinating, and uh, you know this of course is uh, extra uh, biblical, but uh, uh, it, it's just interesting. So what's fascinating about this transfiguration is the possibility that it happened in front of uh, Mount Hermon, 
And in the book of Enoch, it explains that the fallen angels made a pact to create a reprobate mystery on earth while they're on Mount Hermon. So a reprobate mystery is a corrupted truth. Uh, Justin Martyr's first apology can basically summed up as Satan created paganism to keep people from Catholic truth. Uh, for Protestant brothers and sisters, I suggest you go and read that. A good place would be on a, a New Advent uh, uh, on the Internet, and there's a whole list of uh, the, the church fathers there. Uh, read his first apology. Jew wrote about Enoch when he said, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to commend all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they had ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If Enoch is true, and hypothetically, of course, people began looking for the coming of the Christ only seven generations after Adam. Uh, in a book I have called uh, 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 a, a book, it's it's a, it's a translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls by uh, a Michael Wise, Martin Abeg, and uh, Edward Cook. There is the English translation of the, of the Patriarch Scroll. In it, we read uh, the words from Abraham where he says, Nevertheless, after five years had passed, there came three men, counselors from the Egyptian court, and advisors of the Pharaoh of Zoan, they came having heard my words and my wife and kept plying me with many gifts. They asked me for knowledge of goodness, wisdom, and righteousness. So I read to them from the words of the book of Enoch. Try and confirm some of this with a historical record. And I found out that Zoan was, was a true city, which is referred to in the Septuagint as Tanis uh, in Egypt. In Psalm 78, 12, and 43, the field of Zoan is possibly named after the early pharaoh is where it is believed that Moses performed miracles in front of the pharaoh uh, of, of his day. So it was this pharaoh who wanted Abraham's wife for his bride when, in order for Abraham not to be killed. He called his wife his sister. So, so the book of Enoch, we see a prophecy of Christ to come. In First Enoch thirty-seven seventy-one, Enoch is taken to heaven and sees a prophetic vision concerning who? One known as the Son of Man. So the same words Daniel uses for a vision of a physical manifestation of God, the same words Jesus uses to identify himself. In Enoch, he is also referred to as the Chosen One, the Anointed, the Righteous One. The Son of Man will sit on a throne of glory and judge the deeds of the wicked who have rejected God after he will come to earth and dwell among the righteous so he will destroy sinners and strike down kings and rulers who are against God and usher in a time of peace so and like I said earlier it, it explains that the fallen angels while on Mount Hermon plotted to establish this reprobate mystery and if the book of Enoch is true well, the Catholic Church doesn't accept it as you know uh, as scripture Augustine wouldn't add it to the Bible because he said it was too old. So uh, the Jesus transfigured in uh, then Jesus transfigured in front of Mount Hermon as a sign that he is the Son of Man that has come to destroy them. Basically, 
if 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 it's true, and he's shown as the Son of Man right in front of Mount Hermon, it gives a, a really uh, a neat spiritual implication there. So <coughs> back on course here. I, I, I just I like kind of a little trivia like stuff like that. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to recognize him in his glory in this transfiguration. Paul recognizes all three to be pillars of the church when he referred to them in his letter to the church of Galatia. He said, and when they had known the grace that was given me, James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go into the Gentiles and they into the circumcisions. So Matthew, when he brings up the time or after six days uh, in this uh, description of uh, the transfiguration, he's referring to uh, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is also known as Sukkot. It is a holiday that commemorates God's protection of the Jewish people while they wandered in the desert. So during these times, the Jews built a temporary shelter called the Sukkah, and they would eat their meals in these shelters. So it was during this time that Jesus, who called himself the true manna, the type sustained the, uh, the Israelites in, in the desert, how much greater the true in the Eucharist, uh, he would be transfigured into a being of light before them and converse with Moses and Elijah. So I guess this image was so real to Peter, this is really interesting, that he thought maybe we should uh, build a, a couple sukkahs for Moses and Elijah. And, uh, you know, you, you got to you know, look at some of the stuff in scriptures. It's kind of humorous. And uh, before the Father spoke from heaven, they were overshadowed by a cloud. This brings to mind the Shekinah, uh, the image of the Holy Spirit that overshadowed the meeting tent, making holy the bread of the presence and the overshadowing of Mary at the Incarnation. Through this cloud, the Father affirmed the person of the Son in the words, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. So the Father affirms the Son as a Son of God, which of course is affirming Christ as, as God himself. We only have one God in three persons. Let's, let's read from Haddock's commentary on this a little bit. Uh, and Haddock is, is uh, talking about uh, what St. Hilary says here. St. Hilary thinks that Moses and Elias, who represent the law and the prophets, and who here bear witness to the divinity of Jesus Christ, will be the precursors of his second coming, alluded to in Revelation chapter 11. Though the general opinion of the fathers is that the two witnesses here mentioned Anak and Elias. It is hence evident that the saints departed can and do, with the permission of God, take an interest in the affairs uh, of the living. St. Augustine addresses this. For as angels elsewhere, so here the saints also served as our Savior and as angels, both in the Old and New Testament, were frequently present at the affairs of men. So many saints, all interpreters agree, that Elias appears in his own body, but various uh, are their opinions with regard to the apparition of Moses. So, and uh, in verse 6, Haddock uh, goes on, and we're very much afraid. Or, there were two causes that might produce this fear in the apostles. 
the cloud that overshadowed them, or the voice of God, the Father, which they heard. Their human weakness and trembling in every limb, they fall prostrate on the ground. Uh, Haddox uh, uses Jerome in this understanding. The Almighty, it seems, was pleased to fulfill the wish of Peter, thereby to show that himself is the tent or pavilion under the shade of which the blessed shall live forever, and to sanction the public and explicit confession of Peter relative to the divinity of Jesus Christ by his own no less public and explicit confession, joined with an express command to hear and obey him. And again, Haddox goes to St. Chrysostom, very justly remarks that this voice was not heard until after the departure of Moses and Elias or Enoch, that no possible doubt might exist to whom it was referred, and that it was to Christ only and to no other. Hear ye him, or as the law and the prophets are fulfilled to verify in Jesus Christ, your new legislator and prophet, you are to hear and obey him in preference to either Moses or Elias or any other teacher. Haddock goes to verse 7, and Jesus came and touched, prostrate on the ground and unable to rise when Jesus, with his usual benevolence, approaches, touches them expels their fear, and and restores them to the use of their limbs. You know, look, you can't be, you can't help but be struck by the number of times we see where God has manifested himself in some vision or manifestation of some sort, and that the recipient of that manifestation of that vision was terrified, fell up, fell up their feet in terror, fell prostrate. We're frozen with terror. These are the things that, that um, you know, we read over and over and over again. One notable exception, and, and, and before I go into the notable exception, um, I, I want to I read what you read up here because I love the way that you I put think, that. I think I know where you're going, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I love the, the, where you said this. So I'm trying to find exactly what you said, but... Uh, uh, their human weakness could not bear such refulgent beams of glory and trembling in every limb. They fall prostrate on the ground. And of course, I, I'm sure you know where I'm going. The, the the one person who's visited by the angel Gabriel himself. Um, and she's asking questions. She's trying to understand how the plan is going to work, but you don't read anything about Mary trembling in fear or or, or uh, any of these types of things being struck. Even the shepherds in the field, it says they were struck with great fear when the angels appeared As to them. She encounters angels all the time. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, uh, well, it, it's just, it's striking because you, you know, this this faith this idea of faith alone. I love the analogy of, of a person trying to look at the sun. Okay, you can look at the sun for what maybe six seconds before you have to turn away because you're or or you start doing damage to your retina. Uh, and you know these people think that they're going to walk into the presence of God unprepared, who is infinitely more bright than that sun is, 
and and just without any kind of preparation, without any kind of purgation of sin, they're going to walk into the presence of God and be able to uh, to you know withstand that glory to to to. And and yet we see time and time and time again in Scripture that it wasn't the case. The angels fell down. I mean I mean the shepherds. Were, were in uh, great fear, and people fell down before the angels. And, and Jesus has to walk up to the apostles and literally touch them to restore vitality to their limbs. They were frozen on the ground in fear, uh, and yet we don't see that. Don't see that with Mary. I would I would argue this is a this is a uh, an argument in favor of her of, of her sinlessness, of her immaculate. Uh, uh, condition before God. She was prepared for the vision of the supernatural. Yeah, I think I think that's a good argument. Um, there's so much that is in the Gospel of Luke that kind of confirms those understandings, such as the Immaculate Conception in, in the image of the Ark of the Covenant and things. And uh, maybe we'll go there after John. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So we're at Matthew, uh, uh, let's read uh, 17, 10 through 13. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elias must come first? He answering said to them, Elias indeed shall come and restore all things. But I say to you that Elias is already come. And they knew him not, but had done unto him whatever they had in, had a mind. So also the Son of Man shall suffer from them. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them of John the Baptist. So people would not understand what Peter, James, and John saw. So Jesus told, told them to tell no one. Also, the word of these things getting out would probably have sped up Jesus' death sentence. Uh, John the Baptist, who was uh, Elias in spirit, or a type fulfilled, uh, had, had already come. So John the Baptist, who preached repentance for the Jews, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Are you there? Yeah, we'll go on to Matthew seventeen fourteen through 20. Let me just say something real quick. Um, Go ahead. No, you you got r- real quiet there, so I wasn't sure. I just uh-huh. wanted to comment. What a tremendous grace it is here. The the the, the um, transfiguration. He's preparing the the apostles for what they're about to endure. Uh, they're about to in they're about to witness Calvary. They're about to witness their faith being shaken to its core. Uh, and 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 to you know to witness what Jesus is about to go through, Luke they couldn't have survived that without some side of the glory that's on the other side, and and even beyond Jesus' crucifixion and death, uh, their own horrible uh, you know sufferings and death and 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 everything that they would go through, they got a chance to uh, a, a positive chance to see what glory awaits them on the other side. They got a preview of coming attractions, so to speak. 
Um, and that's difficult for us because we have to we have to accept that on faith. We have to accept sometimes in the deepest, darkest moments of our life, there is a glory on the other side if we make it to the other side. So what a tremendous grace the Lord gives them here by by giving them this this flash, this miraculous sign. And you think about that, and you think about what Jesus said to Peter, I are to sift you, plural, like wheat, but I had prayed for you, singular, Peter, that when you're given this strength, you will you will strengthen your brethren. And even though they even had this vision, Peter still denied Christ three times. Because it took that infusion of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to really give Peter you know, the strength. So we have no strength without the grace of God. So we'll go yeah. on to Matthew 17, 14-20. And when he was come to the multitude there came to him a man falling down on his knees before him, saying, <clears throat> Lord, have pity on my, my son, for he is a lunatic and suffereth much, for he hath fallen often into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then he answered and said, O unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the devil went out of him, and the child was cured from that hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus secretly and said, Why could not we cast him out? Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For, amen, I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove from hence hither, and it shall move, remove and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind is not cast out, but by prayer and fasting. So Peter wanted to hang out for a while with Jesus, Moses, and Elias, uh, while Jesus pushed him on, uh, teaching him charity. Uh, you have other to do, Peter. So Jesus' message here, as he has done many times in the past, is not just for the man, but the great multitudes witnessed what happened. So Jesus reading the doubt in the minds of the crowd says, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Him hither to me. Uh, the man here appears to be telling on the disciples uh, to Christ. Uh, I brought him here to the dis disciples, he says. So this could be someone that the apostles encountered earlier when they were sent out by Jesus to teach and heal, and yet the boy was not healed. Therefore, Jesus says, then came the disciples to Jesus secretly and said, why could not we cast him out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For amen, I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove and hither it shall be removed. So, so uh, these words, if you had faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you could move mountains. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, 
I don't know if this is hyperbole or not. If we had faith the size of a mustard seed, we would probably never leave Eucharist adoration. Uh, did Padre Pio have the power of bilocation have faith the size of a mustard seed? Even he did not move mountains. So is this made possible no matter how slim a possibility it is? Because as Peter in Second Peter, Peter 1 tells us, we have become partakers of divine nature. Or as Paul explained in Romans 9, we have entered the family of God. Uh, will we be able to move mountains in the next life? Just, just something to think about. Uh, let's go uh, and look at Haddock's again for this. We may infer that many of the bystanders entertained false notions of his disciples from these words of deserved reproach. Oh, unbelieving, incredulous generation, how long shall I be with you? In which words he shows us how much he wished for his passion and his departure. Hence, Chrysostom says, we must not imagine that our Savior, who was meekness and mildness itself, uttered on this occasion words of anger and intemperance. Not in the like of feeling and tender physician, observing this patient totally disregarding his prescriptions, he says, how long shall I visit you? How long shall I order one thing and you do contrary? Thus Jesus is not angry with the man, but with the vices of the man. In him he upbraids the Jews in general for their incredulity and perversity. As St. Jerome refers to this, the general sentiment is that the reproaches are limited to the people, some extent uh, uh, them to the uh, apostles. So in verse 18, we hear, well, why could not we? The disciples began to apprehend that they had incurred their master's displeasure <coughs> and had thereby lost their, their power of working miracles. So they come, therefore, secretly to Jesus Christ to learn why they could not cast out devils. He answered them that it was their want of faith, which probably failed them on this occasion. Uh, on account of the difficulty of the cure, little reflecting that the virtue of the Lord, which worked in them, was superior to every possible evil of both the mind and the body. St. Hilary addresses this when he says, is of opinion that during the absence of Christ on the mountain, the fervor of the apostles had begun to abate. In verse 19, if you have faith as a grain and mustard seed, Christ insinuates to his faith enough to work great miracles, which require a firm faith going with a lively confidence in God. The mustard seed is brought in with an allusion to its hot and active qualities. That is, a perfect faith which, in its properties and its fruits, resembles the grain of mustard seed in the parable. Uh, by faith is here understood, not that virtue by which we assent to all things, but to believe in Christ, the first of the theological virtues, in which the apostles were not deficient, but confidence in the power and goodness of God, that he will on such an occasion exert these, uh, his attributes, uh, in favor of the, supp of the supplicant. So to have a true faith in this kind 
and free from all presumption is a great high privilege which the Holy Ghost breathes into such only as he pleases. Uh, examples of this efficacious uh, faith are given by St. Paul. Uh, St. Gregory of uh, uh, Caesarea addresses this. By Eusebius and Venerable Bede, to have removed uh, by the efficacy of his faith a rock which obstructed the building of a church, thus literally fulfilling the promise of Jesus Christ at the transfiguration, was not perfect and complete in all its parts till after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the descent of the Holy Ghost. So this is referring to when we go back to Pentecost. And St. Jerome understands by mountain in, the, in this verse things the most difficult to be affected. And so in verse 20, we see here the efficacy of prayer and fasting. What the apostles could not do Prayer accompanied with fasting can affect. How then can that be genuine religion, which makes fat, which makes fasting an object of ridicule? Uh, we see also here that the true church in her exorcisms follows scripture when she uses, besides the name of Jesus, many prayers and much fasting to drive out devils, because these, as well as faith, are here required. And one of the strongest things that's used in the exorcisms is actually the priest going to confession because often the demon could actually pull from the mind of the priest his own sins and the Eucharist. Yeah, it's interesting. Luke, this is paradox here for, um, for, for people who still believe in the Protestant notion of faith alone. This is paradox because Jesus on the one hand says that you could not cast the demons out because of your lack of faith. But then he turns right around and says that these kind can only be expelled by prayer and fasting, which is a work. So which is it? Is it faith or is it, or is it a work? Well, it's both. It's paradox because the, the proof of faith is not merely, like you said, in the ascent. The, the demons know who Jesus was. The demons believe. But it is it, the proof of faith is in the denial of self and the choosing of God's uh, purpose over our purpose. And it's something that has to be proven. So prayer and fasting are proof that we want to tie into that connection, proof that we're making time for God, proof that we're making the sacrifice for God, thus demonstrating our faith which opens up that channel for his grace to work through us. It, it, it is, it's a matter of who are you choosing to serve? Are you choosing to serve God or are you choosing to serve yourself? Well, we go back to what James said. James said, you say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. And, you know, Luke, I keep saying, people who are trying to separate faith from works. They're trying to separate water from wet. They're trying to separate heat from fire. <laughs> I mean, I can look at a, at a video of a fire on, on a television set, but when I walk up, I feel no warmth from it. It's not genuine fire. It's an image of fire. In order to have genuine fire, you have to have heat and light present. 
Now, the other thing that I wanted to point out is the uh, the boy who who um, was described as a lunatic. It's very interesting. The word that's used, <laughs> I know I'm going to butcher this word, so I'll <laughs> just tell everyone. It's Strong's 4583. Now, let me try this. Sell a ni ad zom ahi. Sell a ni ad zom ahi is the word. And it's a presumed derivative of 4582, and it means to be moonstruck or to be a lunatic or possibly an epileptic, to be affected by the cycles of the moon, the, in other words, the cycles of darkness, as you will. Now, it's interesting that over time, this word lunatic came to be associated with mental illness, came to be associated with a person who's crazy. Isn't it interesting, and we've talked about this before, I know many times, how in the early days, the distinction between mental illness and demonic presence or, or activity wasn't so clearly separated as it is now. That, that now they, we don't want to talk about demonic oppression or obsession or even possession as even existing and yet, in this age that, that we talk about, only want to talk about everything being a mental illness, here, mental illness is associated in this verse with, my, my son is possessed, he is a lunatic. They're synonymous. Isn't, isn't that interesting, Luke? You know, that's... Uh... It's kind of coincidental. This is something I was thinking the other day with this mass killer in Maine. How could somebody do something like that? I mean, there's there's something totally distorted in, in their minds. And you look at that, and and you see, and you read about different possessions, and uh, there's not much difference. Mm-hmm. Well, since you brought that up, um, the overwhelming majority of these mass killers of these mass shooters have stated publicly that they heard voices. They heard yep. voices voices of devils and demons telling them to commit the crimes. In fact, if anybody doesn't believe me, you can go on YouTube and you can watch the, the, the actual arrest video, Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter. Now, this, this man had just been arrested. He had just killed... 14 teenagers and three adults. And, you know, they arrested him. The police officer said, hey, what's, you know, what's, what's going on? He, he said, voices and demons, demons and voices. Uh, and, and you yeah. don't think, you know, and, okay, so they say that, well, he's crazy. He's obviously nuts. Is he? Is he? This person methodically carried out this operation like a military operation. He planned every part of it. He carried out every part of it. He, he was in complete possession of his mental faculties, knew what he was doing the entire time. Uh, and, and I think, Luke, I think we're at the point now where we just got to start calling evil, evil, and, you know, mental illness, mental illness, and evil, evil. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, uh, they almost the psychological profession almost wants to use the specter of mental illness 
as as an excuse for for evil, as if this this person who killed those seventeen people uh, is not culpable. He's not well, so he's not culpable. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not buying that. Are you? Well, you could also look at this. You know what's going on with these people supporting Hamas, supporting people who just you know cut the heads off of babies, left rape women all over the streets, uh, some kind of demonic group psychosis. But uh, on the other hand, for our audiences, we're not saying every single one of these incidents is is some type of demonic possession. The church is probably one of the most skeptical entities there is. Mm-hmm. The first thing the church does to say let's get a psychological exam because mm-hmm. you have schizophrenia and you have medications that actually make things worse. No, a- a- absolutely. You're absolutely correct. We're not applying this as a as a as a um diagnosis of every individual crime like this. But when you look at the totality of these kinds of crimes and the numbers of these kind of crimes and, and the barbarity of some of these kind of crimes. I mean, what kind of sick person does it take to cut the head off of a baby? I mean, this is inconceivable yeah. stuff. Uh, and, and, and then you're going to say that, and, and then you're going to dismiss the ideas of good and evil, the ideas of right and wrong, the ideas that there's a God and there's a devil. Uh, I don't know how you can, outside of a, of a, of a, of a, evil force, whether you call him the devil, whether it is whatever you want to call him, outside of that, how do you explain behavior like this? So you, you can't. No, you, you really can't. And it seems like it's building and building. Yeah. But uh, it's a sign of the times. Yeah. So we'll go on to Matthew seventeen twenty one through 26. And when they abode together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. And they were troubled exceedingly. (coughs) Excuse me. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received the drachma came to Peter and said to him, Doth not your master pay the the drachma? He said, yes, and when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, what is thy opinion, Simon? The kings of the earth, of whom do they receive tribute or custom of their own children or of of strangers? And he said, of strangers. He said to him, then the children are free. But that we may not scandalize them, go to the sea and cast in a hook. And that fish which shall first come up, take, and when thou hast opened its mouth, thou shalt find a stater. Take that and give it to them for me and thee. So, taking the road to Jerusalem, Jesus begins to teach the apostles about his coming death. He placed this context again, in the context of that he is the son of man, which as we have gone uh over earlier, is a physical manifestation of God that we see in the book of Daniel. So Jesus begins to tell his apostles that God has to die. <clears throat> this brings to mind what we discussed earlier when we when we talked about the Israelites entering through a covenant relationship with God 
uh, an oath that they put in. Uh, those two words are almost synonymous. Um, uh, covenant memorials and the curse of death for all of Israel for not keeping the oath. So when they uh, when they worship the golden calf, first they're given the Ten Commandments, and then they worship the golden calf, uh, violating uh, that uh, oath, and then they are cursed upon themselves, which is a curse of death. But because of the promise of Abraham, uh, this death of the Jews was held in advance, and Christ, as the true Israel, uh, spiritually, actually took on this form. Uh, we understand that God is accepted uh, or steadfast love to Abraham held the destruction of Israel in, in, in advance. And let's read uh, some of Romans 9 to get a deeper understanding of this. Then we'll continue. Uh, let's start in verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath miscarried, for all are not Israelites that are of Israel, neither are all they that are the seed of Abraham children, and Isaac shall they seed be called. That is to say, not they that are the children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of the promise. According to this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only she... But when Rebekah also had conceived at once of Isaac, our father, for when the children were not yet born, nor had done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy. Uh, I will, or Matt, have mercy. So then it is uh, mercy on those that have mercy. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. For the scripture saith to Pharaoh, to this purpose have I raised thee, that I may show my power in thee, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say, therefore to me, why doth he then find fault? For who resisteth his will? Man who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Or that not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, to whom one vessel unto honor and another unto the dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with such patience vessels of wrath, fitted for destruction, that he might show the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath prepared unto glory? Even us, whom also he hath called, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. As in Osi, he saith, I will call that which not my people, my people, and her that was not my beloved, beloved, and her that had not obtained mercy, one that had obtained mercy. 
and it shall be in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. There shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he shall finish his word and cut it short in justice, because a short word shall the Lord make upon the earth. And Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been made as Sodom and we had been like unto Gomorrah, because they broke the promise. Paul goes on. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who followed not after justice have attained to justice even the justice that is of faith. But Israel, by following after the law of justice, is not come unto the law of justice. Why so? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were of the works, works of Mosaic laws, what he's referring to, the boasts of the Pharisees. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of scandal, and whosoever believeth in him shall not be confounded. Paul says, And Isaiah foretold, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we, be, we had been made as Sodom, and we had been uh, like unto Gomorrah. So that seed, as we discuss in the first chapters of Matthew, was established in Abraham, continued to the union of Boaz and Ruth, Boaz, uh, again, Boaz being a Jew, Ruth being a Gentile, establishing the parents of David. And the reason Matthew shows the begets to show Jesus in the line of David. But since the Israelites were under the curse, they should have gone in the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. In God's steadfast love, a remnant was saved from which God would fulfill his promise with Abraham and make his descendants as numerous as the stars. So God, in a term of endearment, uh, basically, said, Israel was my firstborn son. Jesus is the true Israel who took on the curse and the punishment of the curse by going to the cross. Now, uh, we see in, in Paul, uh, uh, in Romans 8.14, Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children and heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. He says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Well, the Mosaic law was for hardened hearts, a law, rule, fear, and punishment for not following the rule. They even had stoning. So he's referring to the difference between the law of grace and faith and the, and the old covenant. So Paul is writing to members of the church who were living obedience to the faith in the sacramental life. They were led by the spirit to baptism into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood being made sons of God through Isaac, or Isaac shows us a miraculous birth uh, of baptism um, uh, because of the barrenness of Abraham's wife. So Jesus told the Pharisees that he could take stones and turn them into children of Abraham. 
This is what was done through baptism, which mystically applies the water, blood, and spirit from the rib of the true Adam of life, giving birth to his bride. And this is the true tree of life from which the waters of baptism flows. So in order to fill the promise of Abraham, God established not a physical genetic line, but through the cross, a miraculous one. Uh, therefore, Paul can say in Romans 5, 6, for why did Christ, when as yet we were weak, according to the time, die for the ungodly? For scarce, for a just man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God commandeth his charity toward us, because when as yet we were sinners, according to the time, Christ died for us, much more therefore being now justified by his blood. much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but also we glory in God through our own through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received reconciliation. Luke, so this justification Luke, Luke, and reconciliation Luke, Luke, Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm sorry, but um yeah. that came that came through so garbled, unfortunately, because of the connection problem. So I'm going to need you to start from for why did Christ and, and read that entire paragraph again. It sounds like you spoke it through a blender. And I know it's not your fault. It's a court issue. But if could you read that paragraph again, please? Yeah. For, for why did Christ, uh, this is Paul, for why did Christ, when as yet we were weak, according to the time, die for the ungodly, for scarce, for a just man will one, will one die? Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God commandeth his charity toward us, because when as yet we were sinners, according to the time, Christ died for us. Much more, therefore, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but also we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received reconciliation. Now, this justification and reconciliation came through the water, blood, and spirit that mystically flows from the cross by way of our baptism into Christ Jesus. Finish these verses up by, by reading from Haddock's here again to give us a, a deeper understanding. And uh, we'll read where Haddock starts at verse 22. They were troubled exceedingly. Not being able to comprehend the mystery of Christ's suffering and death, which are so opposite to the notions they had of the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. This grief was the consequence of their attachment to their divine master. They were ignorant, as St. Mark and St. Luke noticed, of the word that was spoken. They full well understood that he would be put to death, but did not sufficiently comprehend the shortness of his rest in the grave, the nature of his triumph resurrection, nor the inestimable benefits which his death would bring to the world, as St. Chrysostomus tells us. They that receive the drachmas, in value about 15 pence of our money, a tax according to some 
laid on every person who was 20 years of age for the service of the temple. Uh, you can see this in Exodus 30. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. The Christodom thinks it was paid for the firstborn only, whom the Lord would have redeemed for the firstborn of the Egyptians, whom he slew. Others think it was a tribute paid to the Romans, as Christ in verse 24 seems to insinuate, by mentioning the kings of the earth, and the Jews were a tributary to them at this time. Uh, in verse 24, the evangelist uses the word, uh, uh, I'm trying to pronounce this Hebrew word, but the, the word itself taken from Latin, census, or, or tax. And verse 25, then the children, from these words and the following that we may not scandalize them, some argue that Christians are exempt from taxes. The fallacy of this deduction is victoriously demonstrated from the express words of St. Paul, commanding this to be subject to the higher powers, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Uh, where he says, render tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due. The word children then does not mean subjects, but must be understood in a natural limited sense. Jesus Christ argues a a minora ad majus thus, <laughs> or if the kings of the earth exact money from their subjects only and exempt their own children, how much more ought I to be exempt who do not claim my descendant from a temporal prince only, but from the supreme king of heaven? So this example of our Savior would have adduced, says St. Chrysostom, had he not really been the Son of God. He waived his right to exemptions in temporal things. He declared everywhere that temporal princes have nothing to fear from him or his doctrines, since his kingdom is not of this world. In verse 26, he says, but that we say it may not. Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ uh, pays tribute, not as one subject to the law, but as consulting the infirmity of the people. But he first shows himself exempt from the above example, lest the disciples might take occasion to scandal for, uh, therefrom. So St. Chrysostom refers to this when he says, For me and thee, a great mystery of this. Jesus Christ paid not only for himself, but for the future representative of him, and his church, and whom as chief the rest were compromised. St. Augustine refers to this when he says, Jesus Christ here, as well as on many other occasions, pointedly remarks the precedent of Peter, which might give rise to the strife and contention of the disciples in the commencement of the ensuing chapter on the subject of superiority. First thing, the word that Luke was referring to is pronounced kenzos. That's the that's the word that you were referring to, and and our word census comes from that. So this whole this whole uh, dialogue that you just basically extrapolated on here, Luke, it in the broader sense it gives the example that Jesus is always showing us that we must go above and beyond. We must do more than what's expected, rather than less than what's expected. He first shows, demonstrates why, under the law, him and Peter were exempt from paying this, from paying this tribute. Nevertheless, he pays it anyway. 
I would like to, I do have a business proposition for you if you're interested. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I was thinking we could rent a boat and go fishing. We'll, we'll go net fishing in this lake. <laughs> Get, uh, I mean, imagine we pull a whole net full of these fish, you know, and, and, and just start opening their mouths one by one and collecting the money. What do you think? Uh, I don't think we'd make much money off that business. <laughs> okay. All right. It was worth a shot. <laughs> anyway, please continue. Please continue. <laughs> so at Matthew 18, let's read 1 through 11. <clears throat> at that hour, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who thinkest thou is the greater in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus calling unto him a little child, set him in the midst of them, <clears throat> and said, Amen. I say to you, unless you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, he is the greater in the kingdom of heaven. And he that shall receive one such little child by my name receiveth me. But he that shall scandalize one of these little, uh, little ones that believeth in me, it were better for him that a milestone a millstone should be hanged about his neck and that he should be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of scandals, for it must needs be that scandals come, but nevertheless, woe to that man by whom the scandal cometh. And if thy hand or thy foot scandalize thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to go into life maimed or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye scandalize thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to have one eye to enter into life than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. See that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost, Here Jesus shows us a foundation for a process of entering the church, which is the reestablished kingdom of David in the sacramental nature, which is the mystical body of Christ. For Protestant friends, you're not going to understand the deep nature of Scripture unless you have the faith to believe that the mystical body of Christ is not a metaphor but a heavenly reality. The construct of Protestantism created for the specific task of separating people from the Catholic Church create a subconscious block in, in, in your thinking process. Uh, I don't say this to be cruel. I say this, to, you know, just, just to be truthful. And uh, one of the greatest uh, mercies is, is to leave somebody from the you know, air of truth. <coughs> and I don't say this to be haughty these, uh, because I can't even lift my pinky without the grace of God. Uh, so you cannot even understand the book of Hebrews without this belief that the mystical body of Christ is a reality. As Augustine explained, you must believe in order to understand. Now, the book of Hebrews, the mystery of Yom Kippur, where Christ is head of the body and mediator of the new covenant, covenant spiritually takes his body to heaven in the Holy Mass, 
the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. Uh, when Paul says the one bread a part of the one body, uh, we believe him. Those who partake of the one bread have been redeemed through baptism. They have been given their wedding garments in order to partake of the one body. They have become new wineskins to be filled with new wine. They entered the promise that Abraham fulfilled as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. So there was only one church and one doctrine, the breaking of the bread and the prayers at Pentecost. So thousands of denominations tend to confuse the issue. And Jesus said, unless you be converted and because little children, you should not enter the kingdom of heaven. So first the Holy Spirit responds to a humble soul, giving that soul the love and humility to see Christ in a conversion experience. And this conversion experience leads to the next step, which is what? Peter makes it very clear. He first quotes the prophet Joel, including, and it shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> so the crowds responded, and Peter replied, now when they had heard these things, they had compunction in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what shall we do, men and brethren? But Peter said to them, do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, whomever the Lord our God shall call. And with very many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this perverse generation. How are they saving themselves? Through baptism into the church. He goes on, they therefore that received his word were baptized, and there were added in that day about 3,000 souls. So they were converted in their hearts through the grace given freely of the Holy Spirit. Then through grace given freely, they were redeemed from the atom of flesh and born again to the atom of life, the quickening spirit of Christ into the body of Christ, sins, including original sin, was destroyed by baptism, which is the mystery of being saved by the blood of the Lamb. Now, <clears throat> we have to use reason when we look at these epistles because they're written to people who are already living the sacramental life. And, uh, you know, Paul does not need to say the word baptism every time he mentions the effects of baptism to those in the church who have already received baptism. So he uses words like redeemed, washed, sanctified, justified. Both Peter and Paul refer to purging of past sins, uh, not in the context of anything that would you know, refer to a future sin. Therefore, we're referring to baptism here. Paul refers to this through faith in his blood. Faith in his blood applied to baptism. If you go into detail, looking at Scripture through a, a literal process, instead of that literalist process Protestantism falls back into, you will see that the only times Paul mentions salvation as an instantaneous event is when he's referring to baptism. <clears throat> Excuse me here and take another drink. <clears throat> so, and this baptism gives interest into the promise that Abraham fulfilled as you know, Paul, as Peter was clearly describing, as Paul describes in Galatians 
which, as he also says in Romans 9, give us entrance into the family of God. And as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, divinizes us, which is how we enter the body of Christ. Not a metaphor, a heavenly reality of actually divinization and becoming a member of the family of God. Therefore, we can be the body with Christ as head of the body and Christ working through the body. So you do not enter into sanctifying grace without baptism because you do not enter the body of Christ without baptism. Satan has done incredible damage over time. And this is the the tragedy, the diabolical born-again movement. One may ask, why did Jesus raise obedience above the gift of prophecy, performing miracles, and casting out demons? Because Satan can mimic all three in in order to keep people in heretical faith outside of the true Passover, outside of the kingdom, outside of the body of Christ. So Jesus, this same discourse, says, unless you become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom. So we are called to follow Christ in order to truly be Christians. As a child who obeys a, a, a benevolent father, you know, the child is not formed in perfect knowledge, but out of love for his father, he feels protection and follows the father's will without full understanding. And we believe God when he says, my flesh is true food, without fully understanding it. God's ways are not man's ways. They are a thousand times above man's ways, the scripture tells us. Also, for our Protestant friends, if Jesus said, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you should not enter the kingdom, but also said Satan plants weeds in the wheat in the kingdom, then where is his kingdom? The same Jesus says, I will build my church. This is the kingdom that will be attacked by Satan and confused by Satan until the end of time. Jesus said, and he that shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But he that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a a millstone should be hanged about his neck and that he should be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of scandals. For it must needs be that scandals come, but nevertheless, woe to that man by whom the scandals cometh. This is intense. So these little ones are not really children, but those who follow in obedience to the faith like children of the benevolent father. And anyone who tries to separate these children, members of the one church, have damnation in their future. Of course, this is you can have invincible ignorance uh, of these things and go to heaven if you die in a state of grace. But it's pretty intense. And this would include schematics, bad bishops, bad priests, bad deacons, even, even bad laity influencing people to leave the church. So to be blunt, to a certain extent, it would include anyone of different faiths trying to convince Catholics to leave the church. And Jesus goes on and says... <coughs> And if thy hand or thy foot scandalize thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, maimed or lame, then having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye scandalize thee, pluck it out. And he goes on further and describes this. And for the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. 
So Jesus is telling us that we need to renounce what is most dear to us, even false preconceptions, in order to follow him. In the same context, as we discussed earlier in our examination of this gospel, he explained that we must love him more than mother or father. Or as <clears throat> Haddox explains, connections of friendship, affinity, are sometimes more powerful in inclining us to, to good or evil, open compulsion. On this account, Christ, with great uh, earnestness, commands us to cut with those most near and dear to us when they are to us the immediate occasions of scandal. Or, as Chrysostom explains, Jews also believe that they had good angels to guide them. Angels are appointed guardians of kingdoms, countries, sites, and even individuals. So Jesus is warning those who scandalize that even the angels will be against them. Yeah, it's pretty incredible stuff. You know, when you think about this, first of all, Luke, did you know there was an uh, there was a tradition in the early church about the identity of the of the small child that he uh, brought into his midst to uh, make this example? Did, were you aware of that, Ignatius? Yes, Ignatius of Antioch. Pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it, it is amazing. It kind of puts things in 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 perspective of time because it was about somewhere around 107 to 110 A.D. that in his letter to the Smyrinians, uh, that same St. Ignatius wrote, uh, where, wherever the bishop uh, is, there is Jesus Christ, and wherever Jesus Christ is, there is his Catholic Church. <clears throat> so, it, it you know, it just, this is St. Ignatius, who was a disciple of John. So, um, it's it just, it's just incredible how, you know, the continuity. Um, the other thing is, you know, I half expect, I'm, I'm kind of half surprised not to have seen a Protestant a sect emerge yet where people are cutting their arms off and plucking their eyes out. <laughs> uh, but this is, you, you know, well, they, they, goes, they, they don't call, they go with the cold, call no man father pretty strongly. <laughs> right. So, hey, look. If you're going to take a literalist view in that case, then take a literalist view here. Called no man father means absolute cut no man, called no man father. Well, then I expect you to be cutting those arms off. Uh, We're speaking tongue-in-cheek here, folks, but this is, again, the use of hyperbole. Jesus used hyperbole uh, when he said you strain a gnat and swallow, strain out a gnat and swallow a camel to try to pull that one off. Or he, or he says, you try to pull the speck out of your neighbor's eye while you have a wooden beam in your own eye. Come on. Jesus is not speaking <laughs> literalist here. It's, this is hyperbole. We do not see people walking around with wooden beams hanging out of their eyes. Uh, but the point that Jesus is making here is the very seriousness of the sin of scandal. Um, and and the sin of scandal takes takes many forms and one of the one of the most serious uh, sins of scandal and uh, I, I got into it yesterday with a Protestant online an anti-Catholic Protestant that and you know she was claiming well I'm just asking biblical questions and I went no you're not stop lying you're not asking biblical questions you're asking questions you already know the answer to you've uh, asking questions that have already been answered a hundred times you've never been able to demonstrate 
that even a single Catholic has ever believed that Mary is God. You have never been able to demonstrate that a single Catholic believes that Mary created Jesus. So I think I saw that one. So you know these claims are false. You're bearing false witness. Look, that's the sin of scandal. Because someone else could read what she's saying and be convinced that, that, oh, Catholics believe that Mary created Jesus? Is that true? And she could cause someone to lose their faith. Well, that's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here with the sin of scandal. You know, another form of the sin of scandal, another form of the sin of scandal is if you are in a position of prominence in the church, and your behavior causes someone to lose their faith. You know, people talk about, you know, the sex abuse scandal and clergy that have been involved in the sex abuse scandal. Well, those that are actually guilty uh, and are a very, very small number, but the ones who are actually guilty, yet they've created, in, in addition to the sheer horror of the sin itself, on top of it is the huge sin of scandal. And, um, you know, the, the remedy for the sin of scandal, well, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be tossed in the depths of the ocean. I don't know about you, Luke, but that sounds pretty serious to me. Bearing false witness, but uh, also those those good priests are, are kind of uh, emotional martyrs over this, you know, because so many people will look at them and automatically think, you know, pedophile. You know, so that's just that's just sad. Yeah. As for as for Mary, I mean, Mary is the mother of the hypostatic union of God and man into time. Uh, there's no uh, concept of mother outside of time. But that's all. Just the mother of the hypostatic union of God and man into time. No big deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I had a person say, well, all Mary is, she's just the mother of the body of Jesus. That's all that she's, that she's only the mother of the body of Jesus. Oh, okay. Is, is that the body of Jesus that bled and died for your sins? Is it just that body? That's, that's all? Because if that body uh, that bled and died for your sins and mine was just a human body and nothing else, Luke, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So we'll go on. What think you, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them should go astray, doth he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go to seek that which is gone astray? And if it so be that he find it, amen, I say to you, he rejoiceth more for that than for the ninety-nine that went not astray. If I remember right, this first was the only verse uh, the St. Joseph Cupertino could remember. Uh, the St. Joseph Cupertino, who was uh, spiritual uh, in spiritual ecstasy, ecstasy actually uh, levitated. <laughs> but uh, Jesus is giving knowledge of the love and mercy of God here. Another example would be the prodigal son. And hypothetically, for those who do not yet believe, if Catholicism is true, then the prodigal son is a fallen away Catholic. Yeah. I'm glad you gave that example because um, me and my uh, former wife, unfortunately, 
Um, and uh, for uh, for those who are listening, she's my former wife, not by my choice. She she left. Um, as a matter of fact, today's her birthday. As a matter of fact, but um, we used to go around and around about the prodigal son, and she used to uh, uh, used to tell me that. Well, you know, it sounds to me like the first son got ripped off. The first, you know, the, the first son he did everything right, and 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 you know what a what a raw deal. Oh, you're not you're not looking at this right, okay? <laughs> and when you're when you're looking at the at the nut the the idea of the ninety nine sheep, and you know, my, my first reaction when I first read that was, well, no, that sounds crazy. Of course, you wouldn't leave the ninety nine sheep. That that one sheep is out of luck because he wandered off, but you're not going to jeopardize the ninety nine other sheep. Well. You have to think about this logically. You're not jeopardizing the 99 sheep because the 99 sheep are still in the care of the shepherd. Uh, They're in the the mystical body. Right. But the other thing about God looking for that one lost sheep, it doesn't make any sense at all until you are that one lost sheep. And the idea of the prodigal son, it doesn't make any sense at all until you are the prodigal son. Well, Luke, I've been there. I've been the lost sheep. I've been the prodigal son. And, um, you know, these these stories have many layers on them. Like the prodigal son was uh, just like a story that we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks in Chapter 21 of the two brothers that were were uh, asked to go into the vineyard. One one said he would go and didn't. One said he wouldn't go and then did. These these stories are are about the fact that the repentant sinner is closer to God than the righteous person who thinks he has no need of God. That's what these stories um, uh, uh, show us, and we see it in the gospel. You know, Mary Mary of Bethany. Uh, falling at the feet of, uh, of Jesus, drowning his feet with her tears and wiping them w- with her hair. And what does Jesus say? Because of her great love, her sins are forgiven. It, it, it's, the, it's the beauty of repentance, the great grace of repentance. And contrition repentance is a grace. It's a gift from God. And, and that's, what, that's what's being shown here. And, and the, and the, and the great joy expressed in heaven when one sinner repents, when one sinner turns away and turns back to his father. It's just, I think these are, these are two of the most beautiful parables in all of scripture. If you understand what's being conveyed. Humility is the most powerful, most powerful thing in the universe because that humility is what gives us the possibility to unite to the divine. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's also the only thing the devil can't imitate. The devil exactly. can imitate everything else we can do, but he can't imitate humility. He is not capable of it. And that's why the narrow road of the sacramental life is a practice of humility. That is the narrow road, and Satan operates on both sides of that road. Oh, wait, he'll try and knock you off of that road, too. <laughs> so we're at Matthew eighteen fifteen through 18. 
But if thy brother shall offend against thee and rebuke him between thee and him alone, if he shall hear thee, thou shalt gain thy brother. And if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may stand. And if he will not hear them, tell the church. And if he will not hear the church, let him be to thee as a heathen and a publican. Amen, I say to you, <clears throat> whatever you shall bind on earth, uh, upon earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatever you shall loose upon earth shall be loosed also in heaven. This is a good one. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, this destroys the Protestant concept of the church being only a spiritual church. Here God is again giving his authority to the church, which, as we discussed in earlier chapters, is the reestablished kingdom of David. A kingdom cannot be a kingdom without authority and rule of law. So, therefore, I remind our listeners uh, Paul's words to the physical church at Rome, composed of both baptized Jews and Gentiles, uh, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith in all nations for his name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ, um, although Peter was uh, the first pope, both Paul and Peter uh, worked together in Rome. So <clears throat> Paul goes on, to all that are at Rome, the beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the verses first off are, are referring to the community of those who have been baptized into the church. In order to keep harmony in the church, there is a call to openness and humility. And this takes us back to uh, Matthew 5.23, where Jesus tells us, If therefore thou offer thy gift at the altar, and thou remember that thy brother hath anything against thee, leave there thy offering before the altar, and go first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then coming thou shalt offer thy gift. So, <coughs> man, so we are called through a Christian heart to reconcile with everyone, and Jesus requires a sacrifice of a pure heart. We find more peace in, in approaching the Eucharistic altar when we are able to reconcile. Uh, we must prepare our souls to approach the altar in a state of charity or a sacrifice of a pure heart. So God says, I want to sacrifice of a bull heart and not sacrifice. First, because we do not offer bulls and goats. Uh, second, because as the body of Christ, the Christ is head of the body. It is he who offers himself through his body the covenant memorial of the cross before the Father in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist as a true Passover for the general redemption of the world. So what God establishes for our fallen nature is that narrow road we discussed of the sacramental life where we're both nourished mentally and spiritually. And he's actually being a perfect psychiatrist, if you think about it. Uh, this even includes the gift of confession for the contrite heart uh, to cleanse the soul of guilt so that we can live through mercy and the love of Christ, living in joy uh, and, and actually confidence. But um, 
we should also be reconciled with our brother, but on a larger scale, the whole Catholic Church of Brothers. Therefore, Jesus goes on and says in, says in verse 16, And if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may stand. So here for the stubborn, Jesus refers to a fraternal correction. So have the humility to listen to others among the brothers. In the beginning, when the church was established, it, it was a communal environment. And humility in, in love of Christ was needed to combat our errors of fallen nature. In Acts 2.46, uh, it says, Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, read in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And for those who are rocking the boat in this community, Jesus gave the rule in verse 17. And if he will not hear them, tell the church. And if he will not hear the church, let him be to thee as a heathen and publican. Which is not much different than Paul writing to the Galatians, where many were Judaizing, falling back into circumcision and keeping the second legislation, the ritual and ceremonial law. Uh, saying, uh, you did run well. well, what hath hindered you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion is not from him that calleth you. Little A little uh, leaven corrupteth the whole lump. Have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will not be of another mind. But he that troubleth you shall bear the judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the scandal of the cross made void? Would they ever, uh, would they were ever cut off who trouble you? For you, brethren, have been called unto liberty until only make not liberty an occasion to the flesh, but by charity of the spirit, all the laws fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, Take heed, you be not consumed one of uh, another. So Paul is calling for the purging of the bad leaven. Uh, and this is just human nature. We find it everywhere. Uh, in the command to listen to the church, uh, again, you cannot simply listen to a spiritual church. You must listen to an authoritative one. So Jesus is teaching that man's duty inside the church is obedience to the faith including obedience to the church, which is the body of Christ, the reestablished kingdom of David. And I'm going to read that over and over because uh, that's just, it, it's so amazing. And it needs to be the context of, of everything in the New Testament, that where they were at. So people would never have called the church the pillar and foundation of truth if he did not believe, as he said in Hebrews 12, 22, that we have come to Mount Zion, and the prophecy is Mount Zion, Mount Zion uh, of the Lord, we go to in order to learn the ways and the wisdom of God, as we discussed. So the Bible does not teach that one's individual interpretation is authoritative, but teaches that the church will be guided in truth through the Holy Spirit until the end of time. So as John fourteen twenty six tells us, but the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your mind. Whatsoever I sh uh, shall have said to you, 
John 16, 13 tells us, but when he, the Spirit, has come, he will teach you all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but what things whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak, and the things that are to come he shall show you. And in Acts 1, 8, but you shall receive the power of the Holy Ghost come upon you, and you shall be witness unto me in Jerusalem and to all Judea and Samaria, and even to uttermost parts of the earth, the true church that can remove bad leaven and teach truth through the Holy Spirit has the power of infallibility to do so. And whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven because heaven will not allow what is taught on earth to do different than what is in heaven when it comes to the doctrine of faith and morals. You know, Haddock refers uh, to the binding uh, in verse 18, whatever you shall bind, uh, the power of binding and loosing, which in a more eminent manner was promised to St. Peter, is here promised to the other apostles and their successors, bishops and priests. Uh, the power of binding and loosing conferred on St. Peter excelled that granted to the other apostles in so much as to St. Peter, who was head of the pastor, head and pastor of the whole church, was granted jurisdiction over the other apostles. While these received no power over each other, much less St. Peter, priests received a power not only to loose, but also to bind. As St. Ambrose addresses, writeth against the novations, who allowed the latter but denied the former power to priests. Yeah, so I, I don't know how you read this and and deny a structured authoritative church. I, I don't know how you can do that. This, this, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible is the only authority. Well, the Bible says the church is the authority. So you believe what the Bible says, you believe what the church. And so I'm, I'm going to preemptively, I, I normally comment on the argument you just made, but now I'm going to comment on the argument you're about to make. Uh, because I think it needs to be uh, preemptively made here that you're about to make, and we've heard this argument made, you know, many, many times. Um, so Jesus, when Jesus said to baptize, he said to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I've heard people who argue against the Trinitarian formula that say, well, well, what is his name? Well, his name is Jesus. So, so, so they try to argue, you know, modalism or, or, or what have you. Well, mm -hmm. no, in the name of actually means in the authority of. In the authority of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I'm acting in the name of. Okay? So... <clears throat> So you know, if if a if a if a president of the United States sends an an ambassador to another country, that ambassador is acting in the name of the president. He's acting in the authority of the president. And the argument that you're about to make is, uh, uh, you're about to uh, go into Matthew 18, 19, and 20, where it says, if any of you are gathered in my name, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Well, that means. He's, you, you have to read it in context of what you've just read. Who is in the name of Jesus? Well, those who are in the name of Jesus, under the authority of Jesus, are those who are bound by what he binds in heaven, 
and those who are loosed by what he looses in heaven, those who follow the authority of the church. And what does Jesus say about those who don't? Treat them as publicans and tax collectors. Uh, you know, this is not to say this is not to say that treat them like they're the scum of the earth and don't treat them with the dignity they, they deserve as human beings. But it does say to, at some point, you have to shake the dust from the from your feet and realize that uh, there's nothing you could do for this person. What, what does Paul say? Warn a heretic three times, and after that, you know, leave him leave, leave him be. This is what's being said here. If you are united in the faith, so three united Catholics go into a uh, go into a church. Uh, in front of the Blessed Sacrament and pray the rosary together, yes, the Lord is right there in their midst. Absolutely. Uh, but three persons, uh, you know, let's say a Jehovah's Witness, a, a, a Mormon, and a, and a Seventh-day Adventist <laughs> go onto a street corner and decide to pray together. Well, you know, Jesus is in their midst in the sense that he's in everyone's midst. But is he in their midst in the in the substantive way that he is with those three faithful Catholics in adoration? All present. Absolutely not. So anyway, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder, but I wanted to make that point. Yeah, on on a side note, you're talking about the baptism and you know, I get in discussions with these born agains and say baptism only gets you wet. Well, you're talking about baptism the prescribed ritual God established for baptism, not being the baptized in the name of Jesus, which simply means that, you know, you're not going to be baptized according to John the Baptist or according to a Jewish ritual washing. You're being baptized in the name of Jesus. And that is the process of being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I would ask them, now, if we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, then is the Holy Spirit present at that baptism? If you say no, then you're calling God a liar, because in that baptism, we invoke the Holy Spirit along with the Father and the Son. Right. So, uh, you know, when when they say, you know, my answer to that, when they say, well, baptism only gets you wet, my answer to that is, you know, well, did Paul talk about you when he said that there would be people who would make a pretense of religion while denying its power? <laughs> Jesus <laughs> institutes the sacrament of baptism himself. So you're saying that something that was instituted by the very hands of Christ has no power. It's just getting wet. Um, it, it just... But but you know what? I bet the person would be the same person that would say, "All right, so um, if a person is sick, uh, what would you do?" Well, well, I'd lay my hands over him and pray. Oh, okay. So now the laying on of hands—that's just that's just putting your hands on somebody. That just makes them touched. <laughs> okay. Well, you can't have it both ways. There's either supernatural power present or there isn't. You either have faith or you don't. Uh, you know, you either have faith or you have pretense. It's the same faith that says that the, the the waters of baptism have supernatural grace. It's the same faith that says the bread and the wine become the body and blood of of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's the same faith that says the priest has the power to absolve sin. You either believe it or you don't. You can't really, you can make a philosophical argument against it, but you can't make a biblical argument against it. And at the end of the day, it comes down to you either have supernatural faith or you don't. Uh, that kind of reminds me of uh, the idea that, you know, uh, as we, as I said earlier, God's ways are not man's ways. God's ways are a thousand times above man's ways. And the same Paul who said the cup of benediction that we bless is not participation in the blood of Christ, explained that God uses the base things and the contemptible things so that we do not glory in man's wisdom but glory in God. What is the only thing that can be possibly base and contemptible to the sensual mind? Drinking the blood of Christ, of course. Right. <laughs> so, so we'll go on to Matthew eighteen nineteen, and we'll basically skirt through this because we kind of addressed it already. So, again, I say to you that if two of you shall consent upon earth concerning anything whatsoever, they shall ask, it shall be done to them by my Father who is in heaven, for where, where there are two or three gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of the church. And like we discussed, uh, Protestants try and, and use this one against trying to show a spiritual church, not an authoritative one. But as we have just shown, everything before this verse shows an authoritative church. So, yes, where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, Jesus is there, or in private prayer, but as we have just discussed, this would be in the context of those two or more being subjected to God's one authoritative church. So Jesus says, in the midst of them, in the midst of who? Those who have been baptized into the body of Christ. Does this sound cruel? If you think so, then your argument is with God. But I do believe God hears prayers outside of the church for those living in charity who are also in invincible ignorance. Yet in our modern informational age, I think invincible ignorance is getting really hard to come by. Hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that, that's true, but it's just, it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding to me that, that there are people who are going to, deny God's grace, deny his mercy, uh, even hold it in contempt. I mean, there, there are people that, that, uh, you know, that believe that to, to do good works is actually an affront to God, that you're actually uh, casting aspersions on the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It, it just astounds me that, that, that people will deny his mercy, deny his grace, uh, deny his uh, instruction, uh, and then they will have the gall to try to stand before him and 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 say that he was the one that was unfair. And and I can just almost sense the exasperation of the Savior at that point. I, I did everything I possibly could to save you. You wouldn't have it. You wouldn't. You wouldn't accept it. Can you uh, just try to imagine Luke the sorrow of of I. I I can't fathom the sorrow that Jesus must feel when he must condemn a soul. And he must. It's because of his justice. Because his justice is infinite and is perfect. But Jesus cannot extend his mercy to a soul that won't receive it, that refuses it. It's just, um, 
it's just a really sad state of affairs. And you got people who say they're Christians, but you can't even enter the new covenant unless you're baptized in the new covenant. You can't be fulfilling the new covenant unless you're living the religion and ritual of the new covenant. Satan with preternatural intelligence, his deceptions are that overpowering and incrementalism over time. He makes Freud look like a kindergartner. Right, right, yep. Okay, so the last verses, the last verses we covered were 1821, no, not 1821 to 22. We're on 1821, 22. Okay. Yeah, because we're about to run out of time. We're up the end of the show here. So why don't we pick up with eight? Go ahead. Let's let's pick up with those in the next episode because I want to give sufficient time to it. Sounds good. All right, why don't you end us in a closing prayer here? And as I always will do, I'll say the Our Father, so our Protestant listeners can pray with us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Luke, you have a blessed uh, All Saints Day. And uh, reminder to all you Catholics out there, avail yourselves. You have eight days, starting on Wednesday, to uh, pray reverently at a cemetery, fulfill the normal um, conditions. And for eight consecutive days on each day, you can gain a plenary indulgence for a soul in purgatory following the normal conditions of the church. I, I advise you to look it up. I'm certainly going to take advantage of that. Uh, how about you, Luke? Oh, I hope I get over <laughs> get over this flu <laughs> yeah. soon. I'm, I'm fighting the bug, too. Well, God bless you, and have a happy All Saints Day, and we'll be back a week from today. God bless. You, too.